Listeners, welcome back. You are now listening to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. For first-time listeners, my name is Christine Kim, and I am the host of this program. We are all aware that World War One, World War Two, and the Great Depression marked some of the darkest periods of the 20th century. And in addition to the tragedies that come with war, there was also a worldwide economic crisis. The polarizing ideologies, such as socialism versus democracy, was causing tension between the United States and the Soviet Union, as well as between East and West Germany. Then came the Korean War in 1950, followed by the Vietnam War, all of which intensified the worldwide chaos. Additionally, this was a time where the Christian belief system was changing and being challenged. Until the 19th century, there was a God-centered faith that prevailed, but entering the 20th century, there was a slant towards humanistic, self-centered faith. At the end of the 20th century, the gospel became very pragmatic. Somehow, people were applying the gospel to aid in one's well-being, quality of life, and happiness. However, there was still a minor group faction in Christianity where they focused on scripture only. I want to share with you a little bit about Pastor Aidan Wilson Tozier. He entered the reputation of being the 20th century prophet. Many people refer to him as A. W. Tozier or just Tozier. Jesus, 
Aidan Wilson Tozier was born in 1897 in Newburgh, Pennsylvania. He was the third child of six, and his family was a typical farming household that was common then in Pennsylvania. As a young child, he enjoyed and read many books. But coming from a family that didn't value education, and also one that was not very wealthy, he was only able to graduate from elementary school. In addition, there was no church nearby. Therefore, A.W. Tozier did not have a spiritual life. In 1912, when he turned 15, Tozier and his younger siblings moved to a city named Akron, Ohio, and began to attend church there. Attending church, but not yet receiving Christ as his Lord and Savior, after three years, in 1915, of living in Akron, he was very shocked to hear a preacher say this, If you don't know how to be saved, just call on God, saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. After hearing what this preacher said, he could not forget what he heard. He was very curious about receiving faith and began praying at home. He started to live every day with a burning desire for salvation. One day, as he was praying, the Holy Spirit came to him, and not only was he able to accept Christ as his Lord and Savior, but was able to receive full confidence in his faith and salvation. His life and how he lived began to change. After the Spirit came to him, his heart began to be filled with a great compassion and desire to know God, and he had a great spiritual hunger. He began to read the Word deeply and started to search for a place he could pray. He felt that the area behind the boiler in the basement was a good place to meet God, and every day he began to meditate on the Word in that spot. Through the guidance of the Spirit and through the Word, he came to know what the living truth was, and at a very fast rate, his faith began to grow. He began to live in prayer and obedience, listening fervently to the voice of God and discerning what God's will was for him. To him, there was nothing more valuable or important than getting to know God. There were many people around Tozier who were able to witness how much he changed after receiving salvation, and they too began to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. Among this group, his mother was the first to accept Christ as her Savior, and years later, his father accepted as well. Under the influence of his future mother-in-law, Tozier progressed rapidly in the things of God. Seeing him live in the presence of the Word, she once said to him, If you are a true Christian, you must be filled with the Spirit, and at that moment you will die, and you will begin to live for, and only for the glory of God. This is the life of a true Christian that the Lord will be pleased by. After hearing these words, Tozier began to pray earnestly on his knees to be filled by the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit heard his prayers and filled his heart. Filled by the Spirit, afterwards, he tried to spare time and took off days from work to travel and spread the gospel of Christ. Not only did he spread the word, but wherever he went, he would pitch a tent and boldly spoke about the gospel. At the time, he was not in seminary school. There were many people who were not fond of his preaching because he did not have any formal education. But he did not let this bother him, and in a forceful manner he would preach and deliver the power of God to hungry souls. His ministry began to grow and his time spent spreading the gospel began to increase as well. Of course, all of this was at a price and his ministry faced financial hardships. But he had full confidence and belief that the Lord would guide him through all circumstances and he continued with his ministry wherever he could. As God saw his faith, the Lord provided people who helped his ministry. Then in December of 1924, he was ordained as a pastor of a church in Indianapolis. He was now able to invest all of his time spreading the gospel, and he meditated more deeply on scripture and researched and studied the word even more. His passion for ministry grew even more and he even led several revivals and spread the gospel in other ways as well, such as editing and documenting papers and books about the Word. Tozier became the editor of the Alliance Weekly, and he then decided to serve and minister to people by providing books to those who couldn't afford them rather than accepting fees or patents. He always prayed to know God more deeply. He prayed for other Christians that they would not have a self-centered faith, and that they would receive and spread the gospel that God was freely offering. The gospel that Tozier spread and spoke of had great influence on many people. Though many people had been influenced by a humanistic self-centered faith, Tozier influenced many to break away from that version of Christianity. His ministry did not end in the United States. 
he went to Toronto, Canada and pastored at the Avenue Road Church. Then one day on May 12, 1963, at the age of 66, he died of a heart attack. The moon and stars they wept The morning sun was dead The savior of the world was fallen His body on the cross His blood poured out for us The weight of every curse upon
resurrected King has overcome. He's overcome. Oh. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Francis Chan of Cornerstone Church. Today's topic is what to do when Christianity becomes more unpopular, Part One, based on Revelation chapter 17, verse 1 through 18. I hope you have a blessed time as you join Pastor Francis. Today we just happen to be studying. We've been studying the most difficult book in the Bible to understand, which is the book of Revelation. And today we're studying the most difficult chapter in that book, I believe, which is Revelation chapter 17, because there's a lot of symbolism in it. But I don't want you to think that the whole Bible is like this, and the whole Bible is this confusing. I mean, what we believe in this church—I mean, what the Bible says about salvation, for example, about how to get to heaven—is very simple. The Bible says clearly that uh, you and I, everyone in this room, has sinned against God. We have offended God. By our lifestyles, by things that we have done, because we've we've broken His commands. I mean, all of us have. There are no perfect people, and because of that, we deserve punishment, just like anyone who commits a crime deserves a punishment. But the Bible teaches us that God loved us so much, that God in heaven, our Creator, loved us so much that He had His own Son come down on the earth and pay for our sins. See, that's why we talk about the cross. That's why we take communion. It's to remind us that God loved us so much; He had His own Son die, be crucified on a cross, and while He was on that cross, He was paying for our sin. And the Bible says, "Whoever believes in Him, John three sixteen, shall not perish but have eternal life." And so the Bible says that our way to heaven is through true belief in Jesus Christ—a genuine belief that God loved you so much. That he sent his son to die for you, and the Bible says, if you really believe that, there will be changes in your life. If you really believe that, then there's there's going to be a difference in the way you live your life in following that God. And so we here at this church each week we try to figure out you know what the Bible is teaching us in how to change our lives, how to live in a way that's more honoring to God, not because that earns us a place in heaven, but because we're already saved, and uh, because of what God's done for us, we in love. Love him back by obeying him and serving him, and so what we do here at the church is we just go through books of the Bible and just study through books of the Bible, and、uh, we're studying through Revelation right now, and right now we're in chapter 17, which happens to be a difficult passage. Now,、uh, if you have your Bibles, turn back to Revelation chapter 16. Remember Revelation chapter 16, where we're talking about the end of the world and God pouring His wrath out on the world. But in Revelation chapter 16, verse 19, remember、uh, there was that, that verse in there where he talked about this place called Babylon the Great. Revelation chapter 16, verse 19. In the midst of all this judgment, God says the great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of His wrath. Okay, in the middle of God's wrath on the earth, He talks about this Babylon the Great, and He says, "Okay, He remembered especially Babylon the Great, and it was like there was a special judgment of Babylon the Great." But that's all He says about it in chapter 16. Well, in chapter 17 and 18, He kind of expounds on that verse and talks about the destruction of this Babylon the Great. Now, as I read chapter 17 to you, and you have it in your bulletins if you didn't bring a Bible. Why don't you just try to follow along in Revelation chapter 17? Okay, try your hardest. This is going to take a lot of work this morning. Okay, I hope you're ready for this. Okay, you're really going to have to concentrate this morning to understand this passage. But I'm just going to read it first and read along with me and try your hardest to pay attention to this whole thing and try to figure out what God is talking about when He's speaking about the destruction of.、Uh, there's basically two characters in Revelation chapter 17. He talks about this woman or this prostitute. And then he talks about this beast, and、uh, really, it's all kind of goes along with this destruction of Babylon the Great. But as I read it, just try to figure out this chapter, and then you'll see why I say it's confusing. Revelation 17, verse one: 
One of the angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names, and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I'll explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They'll make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They'll bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Pretty simple passage, right? And you read that, you go, man, what in the world is he talking about? Who is this woman? Who is this beast? And for some of you, if that's the first time you've ever read that passage, you're probably totally lost at this point. And some of you, maybe you've done some study in this passage, and you have some different theories, and you've, you've studied different views. Um, well, you guys, um, this, this morning, I'm going to give you kind of my view after studying this, what I believe it's talking about. At the same time, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it because this isn't the only view that's out there. I really want you to try to figure it out yourself. I mean, the way I came to my conclusions is, um, I mean, I basically did that. I went through the passage and uh, every time I got a clue about either the beast or about the woman, I put it in my handy dandy. Notebook, okay. You know, and I, uh, and so inside your bulletin, some of you guys have no clue what we're talking about, you know, it's a great show. But, uh, inside your bulletin, you'll see a green piece of paper, okay? That was my notebook, okay? That is what I did. I, I took all the clues out of this passage and, uh, and just kind of put them together and then I, I just came to my conclusion based upon that. And so what I want you to do is to kind of take this for yourself. And study it yourself at some point. And, and for you to look at all the clues and say, well, who do I think the great prostitute is? Who do I think that beast is? Let's talk about the great prostitute. Now, in your bulletins, I, I did write down who I thought the, the great prostitute represented. I believe, uh, basically, she represents false religion. I believe that uh, what the great re- prostitute represents is uh, just false religion throughout the ages. Basically, man naturally doesn't love God. We love our sin. There's things we like to do. We don't like to think that there is someone above us, someone that can tell us what to do. We like to be in control. We like to be our own gods. And throughout history, mankind has created different false religions to enable him to kind of go on in his sin and enjoy his sin and yet not feel like he has to answer to anyone afterwards. 
And so that's what I believe the great prostitute represents. You may disagree with me, but let me explain to you why I believe this. First of all, one of the clues of the great prostitute in verse 1 is it says that she sits on many waters. And later on in verse 15, it explains that those waters represent people or nations. So somehow this woman uh, has influence over many people, which false religions have had throughout time. Next, it says in verse 2, that kings, the kings of the earth, committed adultery with her. Now, committing adultery is an interesting phrase because in the Old Testament, when, when the Israelites would leave Yahweh, God, the true God, and go after other gods and worship other gods, God would always say, or not always, but often he would say that uh, Israel is playing the harlot with other gods. Okay? It's the whole idea of God himself... You have this relationship with the true God, and that's the only relationship you should have. But what they did, the people weren't faithful to God, they went after other gods. And he says, you are playing the harlot. You know, you're messing around with other gods when I am the one true God for you. And uh, and it's interesting when it says that kings committed adultery with her. Something that kings would do often, it's obvious why they do it, is... Uh, Whenever a king was in power in any nation, and you, when you read history, you'll, you'll see this. What would keep people from rebelling against a king? Okay, sometimes it was his military power, but even the army itself. You know, the king was always fearful of mutiny. The king was always fearful of, you know, I don't want the people to turn against me. And so what a king would do to keep the people from turning against him is he would hire or use some of the religious leaders of that day. And he would basically pay off the religious leaders and start these relationships, stay close with the priests, so the priests would tell the people, look, this king is there because our God has placed him there. Don't dare harm him, otherwise God will harm you. And so the kings and the priests would have these special relationships where the kings would often pay off the priests and say, look, I'll keep you happy, you keep me happy. You tell the people, you know, that, that are superstitious that their God will curse them if they ever rebel against me. You know, tell them that I was there, that I was placed there by God. And so there was this unique relationship, if you study cultures, between the kings and the priests. Because the kings depended on the priests in order to stay where they were at. They had to keep the people in fear of this king. And so when it says the kings committed adultery with her, I believe that's referring to the fact that the kings would have to develop these relationships with these leaders of false religions in order to keep their position of power. Then in verse 2, it also says that the people of the earth are intoxicated by the wine of her adulteries. That people were intoxicated Okay, when you're intoxicated, not that any of you ever have been, but uh, when, when you're intoxicated, you, you know, the, the whole idea of you, you drink a little bit too much and, uh, you know, whatever, you, you become under the influence of this alcohol now. And now suddenly you'll do things that you would never have done before. Um, but now that that alcohol has kind of got into you, it kind of gets you to do things you never would have done. The idea of being uh, intoxicated by these false religions. It's kind of like this. You, you ever read the Old Testament and wonder why the people of Israel would ever worship other gods? You ever read and go, wait, they just watched their God split the Red Sea open. They just watched their God rain down bread from heaven. They, they just watched their God just send all these plagues on these people, have water come out of a rock, all these different things. They should know that, that that's the true God. Why would they ever worship Baal? Why would they create these statues and then bow down to them? Why would they worship other gods? You ever wonder that? You ever read sometimes and go, man, these guys are stupid. You know, why did they leave the true Yahweh God after seeing all of that power? And then it says that they would dare go worship Baal? Or they would set up these Asherah poles? Why would they do that? Were they stupid? No, it wasn't because of that. You guys, do you understand why they went after all these other religions? These other religions were fertility cults. Okay? When you worship Baal, you believe that there were certain times of the year where you could have sex with anyone. And that sexual relationship was actually honoring to Baal. They would have temple prostitutes at a lot of these temples where you go and you just go for it with whoever 
And that's actually honoring to God. So let me ask you, why did these people go after the Baals? Why did they set up these Asherah poles in their midst? It wasn't because they reasoned, they thought through, you know what, I think this wooden thing I just carved is God. No, they just thought to themselves, you know what, here's a way where we can go and do what we want to do in our flesh, and our God now is okay with it. It's like the religion started with their sin, and then they built a theology around it, which is really what false religion is all about. And even today, you think about it. People don't read the Bible and come up with these conclusions and say, well, I think the Bible says this. No, no, no. They follow their desires and say, you know what? I don't really like the fact that there's a hell, so let me pretend there's no hell, and I'll create a new religion that says there's no hell. I don't really like the fact that the Bible says that homosexuality is wrong, so let me create a new religion that says that it's not wrong. Let me create a new religion that says divorces are wrong. Let me create a new religion that says sex outside of marriage is okay. And then people flock to these religions. Why? Is it because they studied the Bible and says, well, I really think that's what the Bible says. No, no, no. They went with their desires. And so in the sense that people are intoxicated by the wine of her adulteries, it's the fact that people are following this, this false religion, not because the religion actually makes sense and they've thought it through with their God-given minds, but it's because they were intoxicated or lulled away by some of these things that they were attracted to. It goes on, it says that uh, in verse 3, it talks about how this woman is sitting on a scarlet beast. Um, the scarlet beast, later on, you know, as we study that, we'll see that, uh, or what I believe is true, is that, that that refers to a political system that Satan empowers. And uh, so while the scarlet beast represents a political system and the, the great prostitute represents a religious system. And so when it says that she sits on the scarlet beast, it's kind of what I was talking about earlier, how the, the woman or false religion kind of rules over the beast, just like those false priests would often have control over the kings because the kings depended upon them. It says that she's dressed in purple, scarlet, glittering with gold. So uh, she's very rich, which again, talking about that relationship between the kings and the priests, they often would give them money and give them their riches. But here, this false religion is pictured as very decorated. Basically, everything that Jesus spoke against, when he says, don't build up treasures for yourself, save up treasures on earth. And when it tells the priests, you know, and the, the religious leaders of the day, don't dress yourselves up in fancy robes, you know, to draw attention to yourself. Well, false religion will do that. Then it says in, uh, in verse 4, another clue is that she held a golden cup filled with abominations. Okay, think about that. She's holding a golden cup. Okay, so it must look very beautiful on the outside. If someone's holding a golden cup, it looks gorgeous. But God says inside it's filled with abominations. And that's true about false religion. It looks very appealing to everyone else on the outside. It looks very beautiful. Something that we're attracted to. And yet God says what it's based upon, what's inside, which is what matters, is abomination in his sight. But here's the huge clue, the big paw print is in verse 5, okay? When it says that uh, this title was written on her forehead. Okay, when I read that, you, you just know, okay, if someone has something written on their forehead, it's probably a pretty big clue. Okay, and this woman has this written on her forehead. It says, Babylon the Great. Mystery. Babylon the Great. Now, where in the Bible do we first hear of Babylon? Anyone know? Where's the first mention of Babylon, that area? Genesis chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 11. And once you get there, you'll go, oh yeah, that's right. Genesis chapter 11 was about the tower of what? Babel. Okay? This is where it all starts. Way back in Genesis chapter 11, remember it's the story of the people that are trying to build a tower whose top is the heavens. We'll just read it. Genesis 11, verse 1. It says, The whole world at that time had one common language, a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for martyr. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. 
But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speak in the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Okay? Remember that story back in Genesis 11? You see the people who say, you know what, let's erect this tower for ourselves, whose top literally is saying, whose top is the heavens. Okay? So it's a whole idea of let's, let's create this tower for ourselves. And we don't understand it completely. We don't understand exactly what they were doing. But obviously God was displeased with it. It had to do with some sort of human pride that says, you know what, let's make our own tower that reaches our heavens. And we, in a sense, are replacing God. We don't, we don't need God. We want to we do something on our own. And God was so disgusted with that, he decided to scatter people throughout the earth and give them different languages so they couldn't work together to create this one project. And we don't know all the details of it. All we know is that seems like the very first time we hear of this place called Babel. It was a place where people were trying to throw off the power of God and lift up their own power, kind of creating their own sense of security, their own religion. Later on, we hear of that same area, later called Babylon, where the, the Israelites are actually exiled to the Babylonians, and, uh, and they referred to the Babylonians, um, the people of Babylon, as their enemies, the enemies of God. Do you know where Babylon is today? Yeah, it's in the backyard of Saddam Hussein. That's why, you remember uh, Saddam when he says he wanted to revive the Babylonian Empire? Okay, so there's a lot of history to that spot. But it all represents this, this, this beginning antagonistic attitude toward God and basically a false religion and this, this little uh, uh, tower that they were trying to build that was, uh, in a way, going to replace God. And it says in verse 5 also, she's got Babylon the Great, and it says, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. So somehow from that comes this, uh, comes other prostitutes. She's the mother of all prostitutes. The mother of all what I believe are false religions. False religions start when people refuse to bow down to God. As he's revealed himself, and they say, well, I want a different God. Let me make a different God that, that suits my needs. For example... I had a friend who was in ministry with me, and uh, he, he was a youth pastor. He was a youth pastor for years. Total respect for this guy. He loved the Word of God. He taught the Word of God, everything else. Last year, um, he decided to leave his wife and his kids and go after one of his high school students. He ends up leaving his wife and kids and marrying this about 19-year-old. And now he's getting back into ministry. And a friend of mine confronted him and said, wait a second, uh, after everything you've read and known of Scripture, you're okay with this? And the guy looked him in the eye and says, you know what, I totally feel like this is what God wanted me to do. I am totally okay with this. He goes, no, 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 look me in the eye and tell me you're okay with this and you believe that God is alright with this. He goes, I really believe this now. Okay, question. Did he really read the Bible and go, you know what, I think it'd be okay if I left my wife for this other girl? There's no way. Can he really be a part of this church and can this church really believe that it's okay what he's done? I don't believe that. Then what happened? How did he get there? How did he get there to where now he's, he's, he's pursuing this, this role as a pastor, but now he's okay with this new relationship that he's in? Well, what happened is he got lulled away by his desires, he says, you know what? That looks very attractive to me. I'll pursue that. And now that I'm here in this relationship, I need to build a whole new theology around it. See, he didn't start with theology. He didn't start with the Bible. So, you know, I think the Bible teaches this. He starts with his desire and then the theology comes around it. And you've got to build a whole new religion around it, basically. And you guys, that's the truth of false religion. That's what happens. It's not that people use their mind and say, you know what, I, I think this is how it happened. It's, okay, well, I see what God says, but this is my desire, so I need to come up with something else. And that's how these new religions start. That's how all these things that uh, the Bible calls abominations begin, is a rejection of the true God. And it's existed all throughout history. Another thing, it says that she is drunk with the blood of the saints, True religion, I mean, false religion always hates. 
the truth. So in the end times, when we talk about the the true believers, those who stand for what is right and what God says, uh, they're going to be martyred. They're going to be killed. And here this woman is giving approval to that. You're now with Unity in Christ, powered by Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to hear from you. If you have any comments or testimony that you want to share with us, please email it to askhsgm at gmail.com. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Please stay tuned as we are following a program that guides us to know what ethics Christians should hold, titled Christian Ethics.
Hello, listeners. This is Brian Winston with Christian Ethics. Last week, we shared God's views on marriage. In this day and age, ideas on marriage are changing, and as a result, the rate of divorce is increasing. A few decades ago, divorce was considered an embarrassment that people wanted to hide from others. Both Americans and Koreans were embarrassed when they got divorced, and it wasn't uncommon to move away to a new town. But now divorce is such an everyday occurrence that it is hard to find non-divorced couples. This widespread occurrence does not mean it is justifiable or right. Considering this generation's divorce rate between Christians and non-Christians is almost the same, we need to take a closer look at what God tells us about divorce. It is clear in Scripture that God dislikes divorce. We know this from Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Jesus also mentions marriage in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. As I mentioned to you the last time, marriage is a lifelong commitment. Only death may end the promise of a marriage. Also, marriage should be understood as a monogamous relationship. People who are dating or are engaged should marry under the condition that the marriage would not end until one of them dies. A vow made in the presence of God should be kept and respected. This is the basic law about marriage in the Bible. That's why some Christians believe divorce or a marriage after a divorce is wrong without question. But the Bible does provide guidance about inevitable divorce. Jesus mentions exceptions to divorce in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, and chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. Jesus tells us that an exception to the rule of divorce is the adultery of a spouse. The word adultery in original Greek, in this case, is porneva, and it includes having premarital sex and other illegal sexual relations. In this case, an innocent person may marry again without constraint, but the person held responsible for a sin cannot. Forgiven a spouse's faults, just like the prophet Hosea did, is an excellent example of devotion and love. However, if the spouse repeatedly sins, then the spouse who is hurt may choose to divorce in order to protect the children from this bad example and to avoid suffering from emotional damages or to avoid getting infected with sexually transmitted diseases. But we need to keep in mind that divorce was never God's will. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Jesus teaches us about marriage and divorce, which were not specifically mentioned in the Gospels. Let's read the verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 15, and verses 26 through 28. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress that is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. We know from these verses that even if the spouse is a non-believer, we should not choose to divorce. 
And if the non-believing spouse leaves, the other person is no more restricted to marriage and cannot be held responsible for the wrong. It is best to stay as you are. In other words, if you are divorced, stay single, or if you are married, stay married. If you are divorced, remarriage is not a sin. Likewise, a virgin marrying is not a sin either. Now, as I've said earlier, a divorce is not God's will. It never was. Although Moses' law allowed it, Jesus says that it was only because people were stubborn and rebellious. Are you divorced or remarried after a divorce by chance? In Christ, the past isn't as important. What is important is the present and the future. Just as we learn in 1 Corinthians, it is more important to keep the family that God gave us, whether it is to stay single after the divorce or to stay remarried if you are remarried. But if you are divorced, it would be better to try to reunite. A marriage is a vow made in the presence of God. A marriage should be respected since it is a promise with God as well. An engaged couple should not even think of the word divorce. The promise and restriction followed by marriage should not be thought of as slavery or imprisonment. A marriage is a structure to provide safety, trust, and protection for both husband and wife. That is why young couples who are about to enter into this binding and beautiful relationship need to diligently pray before making a decision and know God's plan first. This concludes today's episode of Christian Ethics. Thank you for listening and God bless.
Pastor Leonard Ravenhill once said, I am afraid I will never see a man like Tozier again. He was a man that was not taught out of college, but taught by the Spirit. What he discovered in prayer soon found its way into his sermons, then articles and editorials, and finally in many books. Tozier published about 40 books. His books have reached deeply into the hearts of many Christians around the world. Even after his death, his books have been translated into various languages and have been distributed to Europe and Asia and are still influencing many for the Lord. Tozier warned 60 years ago that the church which is to be holy was headed to a road of showmanship and entertainment. As Tozier said, it may be likely that many church services are organized to be a great show. Recall that he was often considered to be a prophet of the 20th century. He was someone who preached the word with great force and influence and was not swayed by the ways of the world. To him, the worship of God was paramount in his life and ministry. He believed that the true service would flow out of pure worship. His preaching and his writings were but extensions of his prayer life. We will now wrap up today's broadcast. I hope that Tozier's sermons will awaken us again as it did for so many in the past. Thank you for listening as it has been my pleasure and God bless.
Jesus comes in.